still, but it was because of the time. Like, it's such like a crazy progression, really, because things change so quickly. For a moment, imagine the members of Weezer, all sitting in a Mormon church building in Orem, Utah, all dressed in Sunday attire. They're sitting there eating ham, funeral potatoes, jello salad, the three indisputable culinary staples of Mormon gatherings. It seems goofy and surreal, like the perfect setting of a Weezer music video, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but it actually wasn't a music video. In July of 1997, that actually happened. This is the song Michael and Carly, written and recorded by Weezer as the B-side to their very first single, Undone, the Sweater Song. Michael and Carly and their sister Trista were the reason that the members of Weezer were at that Mormon chapel 20 years ago. Just days before, the three sisters died in a car accident while driving back to Utah from a Weezer concert in Denver. This is their fairly remarkable and somewhat forgotten story. Whatever you want to share, you're comfortable sharing, is fine. If there's things you don't want to talk about, like, totally understand. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I don't mind talking about it. I do this quite often, and it helps me. Mm. It helps me get through it. That is Claudia Allen, the mother of Michael, Carly, and Trista. Now, I have a friend who has a friend who has siblings who apparently knew one of these girls or two of these girls in high school. And that's how I heard about this. So uh, after some quick Googling, I got in my car, drove down to Orem and knocked on someone's door, hoping that it would actually be, in fact, the mother of these girls. And it was. She was excited to talk to us about it. So we scheduled the time. And the next day we returned back, microphones in hand. And she told us all about her daughters and their unique connection to Weezer. They could be quite shy and retiring, or they could be as loud as... <laughs> but they were always fun. They were funny girls. They were fun to be around. I, you know, if I say too much, I'll start to cry. <laughs> Michael was just a very friendly person. She decided when she was... Uh, oh, I think she was still in elementary school. She said, I'm going to make a new friend every day. And I, she really worked at it. And she continued to work at it. As Claudia was telling us about her daughters, there was all this Weezer memorabilia laid out on the table. Everything from frame platinum records of Weezer's first album, the Blue Album, to Weezer fanzines called Weezines that the girls had started and mailed out to thousands of people. Michael and Carly did a lot for Weezer. But before they ever met Weezer, they did a lot for a lot of strangers that they met along the way. When they were in high school, for example, they attended seminary, a religious class for Mormon high schoolers. Their dad, Wayne, taught the class. And what would become their penchant for organizing large groups of people started early. Fortunately, we had a large van at the time. And, uh, and I drove the van and we'd go around and pick up the whole eight passenger van full of kids <laughs> you know only two of them were members so it was a really exciting time the missionaries were very happy with our home yeah. <laughs> they came often <laughs> wow. oh, yeah the seminary bus. yes 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 it was it was a fun time and i i would say oh a good half of the kids that uh were involved were baptized how would you describe then carly's personality? Carly was a lot quieter. She was a lot more studious. Mm -hmm. She really loved to study and kept studying all the time. Uh, she had probably her most significant job other than what she did for Weezer was she worked in the, in the state office of kids that needed people to uh, 
be their advocate. Mm -hmm. And so she would help connect the kids with the advocates, and they'd come in and speak to her and sign up. The Allen family moved a few different times and eventually found themselves living close to Hollywood. The family moved again, further away from Los Angeles. But Michael and Carly decided to stay in Hollywood. And that is where their connection to Weezer began. Well, they were in Hollywood and they needed something to do and to go sit in a movie. It's, you know, after a while you've seen them all and it it starts getting a little boring. (laughs) So uh, they were going out to the places that the music was happening and their choice of music before they met the band had been uh, a lot softer than most of the bands were used to, you know. <laughs> but they really enjoyed, and they, you know, they loved meeting people, and the band was friendly, and and I think the band at that point in their uh, careers needed their friendship, mm-hmm. and it wasn't unlike them to make chocolate chip cookies and take them over to the band, and mm-hmm. yeah. So the vibe was like, you know. Hey, I wonder who's going to show up. And sometimes it's nobody, sometimes it's 10 people. You know, there was no fan base whatsoever. That is Carl Cook. He's been with Weezer as long as, well, Weezer has been with Weezer. He's served as their webmaster. He's sort of considered the unofficial fifth member of the band. And he talked to us about what it was like meeting Michael and Carly more than 20 years ago. Within a week, I remember... We'd seen them more times, either, you know, at other people's shows or whatever, and they had reached out pretty pretty early on. They're immediately friendly and, you know, asking questions and being really cool. And I was like, you know, who are, who are these people? Like, everybody else in LA is basically a dick, you know? <laughs> and so, like, these girls are like, you know, what planet are you guys from? And then it's like, oh, well, you know, we grew up in, we grew up all over the country, but we're from Utah. You know, our, our family's Mormon. And I was like, oh, they're different than everybody else here. Because, um, you know, most people just sit in the corner, smoke a cigarette, and, and, you know, ignore you or pretend to ignore you. Like, they, they just, you know, they would ne- nobody would ever say, hey, man, good show. Like, not even somebody in another band. So the, the, the behavior of these girls was like, wow, these are really nice people. Like, you know, they bake things and bring them to the shows for the band to eat. And um, everybody wanted to talk to them because they were just so friendly and cool. And um, I was always pretty shy, even back then. So for me... Like, it took me, you know, the years of being on the road with the band to actually be able to open up to a random stranger. But back then, I wasn't. So, it, but they could sense that kind of thing. And Rivers was painfully shy. So, you know, they were they were very sensitive to that. Uh, and you could tell that. Like, you know, these, are, these are people that you can you uh, trust like, right away. That, in case you didn't recognize it, is Undone, the sweater song, Weezer's very, very first single. Michael and Carly were already in good with Weezer at this point. That voice is Michael's. Even though the story of Michael and Carly has sort of been forgotten over the years, Michael's voice in this song has been heard millions of times around the world. Um. This is Rachel Hayden, a member of the band That Dog. Rachel and her band were also friends with Weezer, and of course, by extension, friends with Michael and Carly too. Just, I guess, just that that every time I saw them, like, they they just, they brightened the whole scene, you know? Like, they they made everything a little bit better. They made the experience of, of, they made me feel okay doing what I was doing. Like, it was terrifying because we were just out of high school and I didn't know what to expect. But they, there was like a comfort that they had that they gave me personally that made me feel like everything's going to be okay, you know, because they, Michael and Carly like us and, and Michael and Carly are real genuine people and they made the experience less scary. It was brutal. It was like 
okay, there's all these clubs and there's all these guys that run these clubs and there's promoters and none of them care about you. You're like, there's nobody, you know, if you're not already established and big, nobody's looking your way. They're all like, you know, who cares? You're nobody. And that was really the vibe that there was going on. And those girls, you felt like all of a sudden you were living in like Mayberry. Like, oh, it's a little town and everybody's supportive and it's cool. And, you know, it's like, you don't, you kind of forget that there's like, you know, 9 million people outside the door and most of them, you know, have no interest in what you're doing at all. (laughs) (laughs) So this tendency that Michael and Carly had to befriend people and lift people up, it wasn't just with members of bands. Carly, uh, one of the things that she did as she got to know the fans, there were some kids that were... I'm sure they were high school, maybe junior high school kids that came home to empty homes. And uh, so they'd call Carly and talk to him about school and what they were going through. I think she was doing quite a bit of nurturing for them as she said, well, be sure and call me and let me know if you got your homework done. (laughs) Do you think that, that Michael and Carly sort of played similar roles for these young bands? Like, did they assume some type of, like, motherly influence? Or... Maybe big sisterly. Yeah, they cared about where they were and what they were doing, and yeah. Weezer got signed, and they released the Blue Album, and they released Undone, the Sweater Song. But it didn't really blow up at first. They left on a short tour, and they got back to L.A. to play a show at the Troubadour. All of a sudden, looking out at the venue, there were tons and tons of kids. As it turned out, a radio station in Los Angeles had started playing the Sweater Song just a couple days before this show, while Weezer was out of state. And that is where Michael and Carly came in. Once those kids were there, once kids were coming to these shows, um, there was a combination of kids saying, you know, I I want more. How do I get more? Now, when Weezer put out the Blue Album, the record label wouldn't let them print a lyric booklet to go along with it. And all of these slightly obsessed Weezer fans wanted their hands on them. So Michael and Carly started getting the addresses of all these fans. They sent them a questionnaire asking them if they wanted more lyrics. So in each envelope pack, they included a sheet that was like, you know, hi, we're Michael and Carly. We're, we're sending these lyrics out. But we're not just, you know, it said something like, we're not just like record company lackeys, you know, we're actually fans of the band. And they put a little questionnaire in there that was like, you know, hey, you know, would you be interested in a fan club? And, you know, you know return this form if you are, and we'll, and we'll save your name and address. And when things get rolling, we'll, we'll reach out to you. And as the summer went on, it got inundated with more and more mail because the records started catching on everywhere. And it got to the point where they uh, realized well, you know, this is working. We're getting a ton of people. And meanwhile, we were out on the road. We started a mailing list at our merchandise tables. And every time we had like a few pages of that, we'd send that to them. And those are more people that they'd send out this sort of introductory package to. Like, hey, are you interested? What would you like, you know? And more and more, they came to realize these kids want a fan club and we'd love to do it. So I think what they did is they galvanized the most interested fans. Like, because certainly there were thousands and thousands of others that didn't didn't write in for lyrics, or if they did, they never wanted anything more than the lyrics, you know. But for the hundreds and then thousands of kids that wanted the club, these are the most motivated, most interested, and most likely to spread the word themselves, kids, because they were so into it. You know, they wanted everything. And so their idea to kind of reach out to anybody sending in these lyrics and then you know, coming up with, a, with something to give to them was, you know, I, I can't call it a stroke of genius because it seems kind of obvious in retrospect, but at the time, it never occurred to us. I mean, basically, they took, like, not even a ball. They took, like, an idea of a ball, and they turned it into a ball, and they ran with it. Keeping that ball rolling was a pretty big task as Weezer's intense fan base grew. You know, of course, by fall 94, it was crazy. Uh, you know, because the record went on to sell a million copies in about six months, and they were getting like endless bags of mail at, at their post office box. You know, <laughs> it's just like, how are we going to answer all these? But they did. They got through everything. And by the end of 1994, the fan club was at 1,500 people. By the middle of 1995, it was at 3,000 people. 
And by the middle of 1996, it was around 3,500 to 4,000. A lot of work for two people. So it was like this huge operation for these two girls to keep up with it all. But they loved it because on top of all that stuff, they'd, they'd go on road trips and meet up with fans and have like these sort of fan events before shows. Uh, and even when the band wasn't doing something, if they were taking a break, I mean, they'd always, they'd always like, you know, if there was a TV appearance or something, they, this is back when you couldn't like just, you know, put up a tweet saying, hey, check out, you know, Conan tonight. Like back then, they'd send out a postcard to 4,000 people. So we were always giving them whatever information we had so that they could pass it on to these kids because we knew that these kids were the ones that cared the most. It, it just made the most sense to, to, to treat them the best because, like, duh, like, you know, <laughs> if, if they like you and they're supporting you, like, those are the people you want to hold on to. In 1995, Weezer was scheduled to perform on The Late Show with David Letterman. This was the big time. And this ended up being one of the most legendary moments for Michael and Carly and the fan club. And so Michael and Carly had this list of fan club members. It was before computers, before cell phones. And so they called Wayne and said, can we use your phone card and call all these kids? And so they went to a place where there were phones that both of them could be on the phone at the same time and called these, all these kids that were on the fan club list at that time to tell them to watch Letterman that night. <laughs> uh, our next guests are a peppy power pop quartet whose self-titled debut CD has sold over two million copies. Oh. I'm not scared of them. Ladies and gentlemen, here they are, Weezer. That was legendary. That was like, uh, everybody in the fan club gave us their phone number. Let's call all of them, you know? And it took them like three days to do that. I remember they went, I think they went to an air, they went to like an airport payphone or something like that and used the used that card to, to call all of them like everybody so even at that time there was like aol.com and stuff so and she was and Carly was on that so she would tell these people but news didn't spread on the internet back then it was like these couple thousand people just happened to be online total you know <laughs> so let's just reach out to them like that but that wasn't like it wasn't like a guaranteed anything. It was like, well, maybe we'll reach some people that way. Maybe we won't. But now, obviously, that's the only way to do it. Michael and Carly were friends with Weezer. And yeah, they were fans too, but they were more than that. They were confidants. And the more you learn about Weezer's early years, the more clear it becomes that Weezer really needed Michael and Carly. And guess what? The fans really needed Michael and Carly too. Because this wasn't just a passive fandom. This was an active participation in the creative process. Weezer was creating music, and Michael and Carly were creating a community. Both parties were working to create something big. Now, think about how rare that is, that a couple of fans create an entirely singular fan experience. And that singular creation somehow becomes equally important to the band members themselves. How many fans ever actually find themselves in a position of influence like that. And would that even be possible in the same way today? In the 90s, it seemed like they weren't as fanatical as they are now. Like now, it, there seems to be like like a, a falseness and a, there's something not real about fans today than, there, than it was in the 90s. Like in the 90s, it seemed more like family. Like fans seemed more like family. And... That's another thing. Like Michael and Carly seem like family. Nowadays, it's more. It's like more creepy. It's like, it's weird. It's it's sleazy. It's it's like it's like um. There's there's like a ulterior motive or there's a sketchiness about about now and that but that there wasn't in the '90s. In the '90s, I felt it felt safer. It felt more innocent and more real and there wasn't iPhones and, and Facebook and, and all that stuff that people use that as a way of getting more about what they want than helping. As you can imagine, this sort of intense Weezer fandom kind of got on the nerves of some people after a while, including that of Leah Bell, sister of the Weezer guitarist Brian Bell. Leah's lived in Salt Lake for many years and we got a hold of her. And she remembers what it was like to be in high school when Weezer's music was getting played in high school bedrooms across the country. I was like, well, I'm not really 
I'm, I'm proud of my brother, but, you know, it's not really my thing. But then, so, my dad was a member of the Weezer fan club because he just wanted to get the meeting every month and stuff. And then they have this book in there that was, like, the contact information for all of the members of the club. And so, my dad, because his last name is the same as Brian's, and he's from his hometown, obviously, people started writing in letters thinking he was, like, the brother or something. So my dad would give me these handwritten letters, like, from 15-year-old girls. Like, he's like, I feel really weird, like, responding to this. So I, he handed them to me, and I started writing back to these people and became pen pals with, like, 25 people. And I have, like, huge boxes full of letters that, I sent back and forth for, like, years, and a lot of the people I still talk to. Um, but it wouldn't have been... I would have never made these friends at all if it weren't for Michael and Carly starting the Weezer fan club. Um, like, one of the girls... Two of the girls were uh, made of honor at my wedding. Um, like, it's just... It's cool that we were able to... I was able to make such good friends because of that experience. So in addition to all the wee-zines and the pen pal creation, Michael and Carly also organized fan club meetups. And these, too, became a thing of legend. And so, like, when they would have these get-togethers, a lot of, especially if they were in California, the, the band would come, too. So, like, the fans actually got to meet the, the band up close and have their pictures taken with them and just hang out, you know. It was usually, like, a barbecue or something that went along with it. But it was just a really neat, like time and experience because I mean I bet there's things like that that could happen still but it was because of the time like there wasn't Facebook you know what I mean like there wasn't a way for fans to connect digitally so it was like through this through letters like actual like handwritten letters and um these get-togethers that were like announced in the zine so it's such like a crazy progression really because Things change so quickly. the massive, somewhat surprising success of the Blue Album, Weezer had to do a follow-up. So, in late September of 1996, almost exactly 20 years ago, they released Pinkerton. Pinkerton was not an easy album to listen to. It was gritty. It was sticky. It was conflicted. It seemed remarkably tortured. How tortured was it? Well... since it was released, Pinkerton has been deemed a cult classic and massively influential on rock and roll. But it was not exactly that well-received when it came out. It was not the Weezer that people had gotten used to before. In fact, in a reader poll in Rolling Stone magazine that year, it was listed as one of the worst albums of 1996. A recent article by The Guardian said this, The LP laid the blueprint for emo, and became a curse for the band whose fans never really forgave them for not following up their confessional masterpiece. 
we were in a situation where Pinkerton was struggling. And we had a good run in the summer, which was kind of a surprise because no doubt it offered us to open for them. So it kind of like revived the effort, you know. And and that had actually gone quite well. And then these the headlining shows after that were going great. So the idea was, you know, if we just keep doing this, record sales be damned, we have a movement happening here. You know, people are coming around and we were selling out these, they're not big places, but we're selling them out. So we should keep doing this, you know, for a while. And I think uh, Rivers was the most conflicted because he you know, had felt stung by the bad criticism and stung by the lower sales. And he was, he really had thought he was sure he had like, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be great. People are going to like jump on this concept album and it's really going to be, you know, what they want. And he did not really get that reception uh, not so years later. And so he was on the cusp at all times of looking for a way to say, well, let's stop, you know, we'll, we'll start again later. Like he was always kind of looking for like that excuse, but really on the ground and on the road, it was going on. He, he knew that. So on would we go. Around this time, Michael and Carly were at their parents' house in Orem, prepping to drive to the Weezer show in Denver with their younger sister, Trista. The plan was to go to the show in Denver and then drive right back after the show to catch the next show in Salt Lake City. Their dad was scheduled to get a brain shunt implant while they were gone in Denver, and the sisters shaved his head before they went. And I was sound asleep when they were leaving, really early in the morning, and one of them, I don't know which one it was, came in and said, we're leaving now, and I probably just muttered something. I remember hearing that, but I don't know what I said. The show in Denver went well, and after the show, the Allen sisters and members of the Weezer fan club waited outside the Vans tour bus to get a glimpse of Weezer and perhaps share a moment with them. So the band would usually get in the bus and Michael and Carly would usually say, you need to go talk to your fans a little while. I think they had gotten to the point that they knew that at that time. Uh, so they went out to say goodbye to the band and the band was out in the parking lot and there were, where was a cluster of fans that stuck around. And, uh, and while they were out there outside and uh, waiting to get in the bus, Rivers got out his acoustic guitar and sang the song Michael and Carly. An hour into our conversation with Claudia, this was the first time she got choked up. Laid out on the table in front of us are pictures taken at that very moment outside the tour bus. There's a picture of Rivers Cuomo with his acoustic guitar in hand playing the song Michael and Carly. There's another photo of the Allen sisters listening to Rivers play it. It is a surreal glimpse into this moment. And then the guys got in the bus and went off. And, and the friends that uh, Trista had that lived in Colorado, uh, they said, why don't you come up and stay with us and get up in the morning and drive so you don't have to drive tired. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, we can do it. There's three of us, we'll rotate. And so they took off, you know, I'm sure it was after, you know, maybe one or two in the morning, they they started driving home. From my perspective, we got on the bus, you know, packed up the, packed up the gear, Rivers, you know, sang to them in the parking lot, and then off we rolled. And it was going to be like, all right, we'll see you tomorrow in Salt Lake City. Like, that's it. You know, everybody's going to get there one way or another. And we knew they were on their way, and they were it's supposed to be home uh, the next day in time to rest a little while and then go up to the venue in Salt Lake. And they didn't come. And we got to Salt Lake City and, you know, pull up, you know, this is the next morning. We slept on the bus as it drove overnight. And we got to the, after the gig. It was a place called BB-8. Um, we set up the gear. We did the sound check. You know, everything was fine. And by showtime, I don't remember who said what, but eventually somebody was like, you know, has anybody seen Mike on Carly? You know, why aren't they here? And back then, of course, nobody had cell phones still. So you couldn't really reach out and say, hey, where the hell are you guys? What's going on? Um, so it was like, well, we're, you know, where are they? And there was no sign of them. And we did the, we did, we played the show and there was still no sign of them. And people at this point were very worried. And, uh, but there had been no, 
know, I think their family at this point was on the phone with the police and trying to figure things out, and nobody had seen anything, and nobody knew what happened. Like, you know, they just vanished. I got on the phone and started calling, uh, and I started just going south in Utah. Utah's, at least at that time, was kind of complicated because you couldn't call one place and know what had happened all along the road. You had to call all along the road to find out if that particular group of officers knew anything, and that was laborious. And so I, you know, I thought, well, maybe they just decided to stop for the night. What, you know, and we, they didn't have cell phones. It was not that wasn't that time, and uh, or maybe they had car trouble, or you know, I was thinking of all the things that could be, and I'd see them, and and uh, but you know, of course, I was worried. The waiting and the calling and the searching continued until Claudia and Wayne got a knock on their door. Anyway, this friend of Tristis, who, who was, you know, we knew him well, uh, he came in the house and he said, can I, can I use your phone? That was, that was the first thing he said. And uh, we said, sure. And he got on the phone and and this, you know, he's just young. He'd been home from his mission a year. Uh, he uh, he took the phone and he said, "Okay, I'm with the parents now." And handed the phone to Wayne. And that was the mortuary saying that our daughters had passed away. It was, a, you know, devastating to us. But I, you know, I ached for Drew too because I had. That was a big thing he did. Uh, and so that's, that's how we learned. And it was, it was a tender mercy in that I got Wayne home before that. I mean, if I had heard earlier, I don't know I would have been able to go up and get him. And, it, you know, and, and even though he was not at his best at that point, he was still here to be together to hear that. I think we had to go to Calgary, and that's a long, long drive, too. And I think it was sometime the next, like, maybe afternoon, we were on the bus, and I just remember the whole bus was in shock. Uh, like, everybody just kind of retreated to their, you know, bunks and just kind of, you know, I don't know, either took naps or laid there or just stared at the ceiling or who knows what. Um, and my personal feeling was just, you know, it just, it just seemed impossible. It just, you know, how could it be? Brian Bell called his sister, Leah, to break the news. And he was really distraught. And um, he, he, when he was telling me, I could tell he was in shock, and he was like, couldn't believe it, and he was saying it. And so it was... Um, extremely tragic in fact my brother like he was like i can't handle this i need you to be the one to tell the fans what happened um and so i had to like be the brave face i guess and deliver this bad news to these people i had grown so close to so that was really hard it was awful So then we had to go through all planning the services and all that stuff, which is pretty hard. And uh, and Wayne wasn't able to do very much of that. But, you know, I have two sons that are pretty terrific and live close, and they better not move. <laughs> so we talked to her two sons, Kenyon and Tyler. At this point, it's just Kenyon, Tyler, and Claudia. Wayne passed away a couple years ago. This is Kenyon talking about the lingering effects that the tragedy has had on the Allen family. We well, we got together as a family uh, last night. This is a family dinner. And every time we get together as a family, it's just it's a little quieter than it should. And it's a little smaller of a gathering than it should be. So even during the happy moments, there's kind of this under 
underlying fact that it's still just a little sad. Here's Tyler. The grieving process is one of those things, and it's something I guess that the way that I've internalized it um, as I've gone, you know, within the intervening years and going to funerals, that relationship to that person, that individual that has passed away, what they've had with other people, there's just no way to understand or know the depth of that influence and that effect on somebody. So to have that multiplied, uh, you know, by three, it was, uh, it was a difficult time. We had to pick out the cemetery plot, and we had to go to the mortuary and all those really hard things. Yeah. And to do it for three of them, uh, I don't know if it's harder than to do it for one. I mean, when a parent loses a child, it's just plain hard. And it, I think maybe sometimes life can only get so hard. I remember being with my mom uh, as she was making arrangements a few different occasions. One in particular, we were at the uh, uh, funeral home and she was having to um, sort caskets uh, for the girls. And the, the, the guy working at the funeral uh, home was uh, showing her different casket options and, of course, doing his best to upsell <laughs> as, he, as he could. And my mom just exploded on him and was just like, do, do you have a group discount? And, you know, she just got really irritated with him and his brashness of trying to upsell, you know. Remember that image of the members of Weezer at a Mormon church building in Orem, Utah? Well, now that's where we're at in this story. We had so much love and hugs and people remembering nice things. And uh, we got a little bit giddy. We were just, I was just so happy to see all these people that cared about us and cared about Michael and Carly and Trista and, and told us good things. And we had lots of flowers. We had a lot that went out to the cemetery, but they took the flowers that were in vases and put them on the tables. And it was I couldn't believe how many flowers there were. So I don't know, a, ch a typical chapel probably holds a few hundred people. And so that, I would say there was probably about, I don't know, six to eight hundred people there. I'm curious if Weezer was a presence at all. I know they were there at the funeral and they were fans at the funeral, but was, was that topic at all at uh, the funeral I don't, I don't think it was at the funeral. Yeah. Uh, they were there, and they were over on the one side altogether with their, I'm going to be a pallbearer mm -hmm. flower on them. But I don't, there wasn't, they didn't cause a ruckus in any way. Sure. They were just there. And one of the guys said, oh, we had exactly what your daughter said. We, it was served at every funeral. We had funeral potatoes and ham, <laughs> jello salad. <laughs> They loved it. It was great. Now, the death of the Allen sisters didn't just affect the Allen family. It also really, really affected the members of Weezer, too. After the funeral, the band finished their touring obligations, knowing that that's what Michael and Carly would have wanted. Then, a long and very much speculated about hiatus followed. The lore of Pinkerton grew during this time, yet Rivers just seemed to want to distance himself from it all. According to Rachel Hayden, their deaths really did hit Weezer pretty hard. I think so, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they were they were like family to, to them. They were like like sisters. Um and absolutely I think they needed time to grieve. That's only human. And they they did the human thing. I mean, they took they took time off to grieve and and that's I think the healthy thing to do. And I, I think, yeah, there was a dark cloud over them for a while, um, as, as there is when anyone passes. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's traumatic. I think when this happened, it really took the wind out of his, his sails in particular. Um, he viewed it as like, I don't know if he viewed it as a sign or, you know, an insult, you know, like a slap in the face, insult to injury, and I think Rivers has said, you know, thought to himself, well, this feels like perhaps the Pinkerton era should stop. I should take a break. Maybe I'll go, maybe I'll go to, you know, back to Harvard again. And, you know, we'll figure out something later. Like, I think he viewed it as like a, you know, this whole thing has been kind of a, a, a mess from the, the minute it got launched. So perhaps we should set this aside and start over later. 
I mean, I'm speaking for him. I can't say that's how he really exactly felt, but that's what it, that's the vibe that came across. And this event happening absolutely influenced that. I mean, it totally did. Was it the only reason? Would it have happened some other way had they stuck around? I think they would have toured longer, but I don't know how much longer they would have toured on this album. What probably would have happened uh, had they not passed away is that Weezer would have made a third album sooner, and uh, it wouldn't have been the same third album. It, it, I don't know exactly what it would, have been, what it would have been, but I think because of if the girls had been around encouraging things as they had, there would have been this more motivation and impetus to, all right, get back in the studio, focus, don't get lost in dead ends, like get, get something, get something down, make some good music and put it out. Like don't, don't hesitate. Cause there was a lot of hesitating that ended up happening. A lot of like aborted uh, ideas and uh, sessions that never actually came to anything. But I think had they been around, that would not have been like that. I have no idea how different the album would have been from the Green album, but it would have been somewhat different, I'm sure. And it would have come out sooner. Brian Bell's sister, Leah, has lived in Salt Lake City for a number of years, and she hasn't seen her brother's band play here that much. Well, I know that it was really difficult for them to play in Salt Lake, specifically because I think that was the last place they saw them um, alive. So... Um, it was, like, just really a somber feeling, like, coming back here. That's why they haven't played here very often. I think that's part of the reason. And my own personal experience was I had to try to pick up the pieces of the fan club. And for about two years, I did. I did everything I could to the point where um, the band was going to sort of relaunch in 2000. At that point, everything became kind of online. And I became like the kind of head webmaster. And all of a sudden, my part of the website, you know, the Carl's Corner, became online. It used to be like a little section of the zine that I'd send over to the girls and they'd type it up and put it in. So suddenly it was like, everything you need to know is online and everybody's online now. And at that time, we had a tribute page to the girls and anybody is welcome to go check it out. There was always this idea of keeping their memory alive. But to the general public, it's like, who's that, you know? Who are those? What are these names that they keep talking about? Like, you know, they just don't know. And I don't know if that's, you know, something that I failed in trying to keep the, the information alive, or if time marched on and one of the, just like everything else, people, some people know, some people don't know, and unless you tell somebody, they don't know, you know. But they're not necessarily telling the world about it either. It's kind of like their private story. It's like, well, yeah, you, you guys know the Buddy Holly video, but I know how Michael and Carly sent me a response to my letter and I sent them a mixtape one time and this and that. And these people, you know, they had this like, not a secret, but it was like their personal thing. Their brother Kenyon is among those keeping it private. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to tell folks. Like I was at a baseball game, not this, just this summer, I was wearing a Weezer shirt and somebody said, oh, I like your shirt. And it was just some, you know, 18-year-old girl working at, the concession stand and I wanted to say, Oh yeah, let me tell you, let me tell you a famous story, but I'm afraid the way that that comes off. So it's more, I guess, in my own heart and my, my own head when, uh, you know, I could be anywhere in the country and when sweater song undone comes on, Michael's voice comes on, I turn off the radio as loud as I possibly can. And I just have this, you know, just this quiet moment to myself where I think I get to hear her anywhere, anytime I want to. And that's sweet. Just a sweet, private moment that I get. Jimmy Eat World's most iconic songs, Hear You Me, off of their 2001 album, Bleed American, is actually about their friendship with Michael and Carly. What would you think of me now? 
So lucky, so strong, so proud I never said thank you for that Now I never have a chance May angels lead you in Now Kenyon mentioned this Jimmy World song and when he mentioned it, he brought up a good point. While Jimmy World and other bands did write tribute songs to Michael and Carly after their death, Weezer wrote the song Michael and Carly while they were still alive. The girls were actually able to hear that song. But Weezer went beyond just writing a song. A month or so after the funeral, they actually organized an entire tribute show. The tribute show is in Los Angeles. And the record label flew the Allen family out and paid for all of their expenses. Weezer played, and members of Green Day and No Doubt were there in attendance. And uh, Claire Danes came and sat and stood behind us in our booth, and we kept thinking, who is that person that's so <laughs> bold? <laughs> Does she know who we are? <laughs> Wayne was a lot more recovered from his surgery at that point than he was at the funeral and he was finally strong enough to say a few words about his three daughters. And his comments and the entire show are actually on YouTube. Yeah, you know, if you search YouTube for Weezer, Michael, and Carly, one of the very first things that comes up is a video of Wayne addressing the audience at the tribute show. And this wonderful woman, I've had the fortune to be married to for 34 years. <laughs> And she's the mother of our five children. And I can tell you that as far as we're concerned, we still have five children. I want to thank hundreds and hundreds of people all around the world. We've been receiving internet mail from all around the world, from Australia, from Japan, from South, Central and South America, from all over the United States. Thank you one and all for a lot of love and support. We wish we could get you all close enough to show you the picture. It's our favorite picture of our three daughters. And as far as I'm concerned, they're here tonight. They've had a wonderful time. My dad was uh, very solid through the process. Uh, he um, mourned it with a sweetness that uh, it was kind of surprising. Uh, a lot of peace and uh, um, comfort. Carly's response to the question was, you know, they were our friends. They just happened to play music. We want you to know that they died doing exactly what they wanted to do. We feel very fortunate that they went together. We believe in a God and we believe in an afterlife. I quoted Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, a wonderful author who wrote a book called The Little Prince that I read to each of those girls when they were little. In that story, the fox told the little prince, it is only with the heart that one sees rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. On behalf of our entire family, of Michael and Carly and Trista, please take care of one another. And right after Wayne Allen's speech to the crowd, Rivers Cuomo got back up on stage, electric guitar in hand, and played, well, you can probably guess what song it was.
I'm Derek Clements. And I'm Court Mann. And this has been episode 11 of the What Say Ye podcast. For more stories, go to whatsayyepod.com. You can also find us in SoundCloud and on iTunes. Thanks for listening.